founded in 2001 by Niawike Parks, we're 20 years old this year. Flipdai is one global critical acclaim and has played a key role in developing poets such as Inua Elms, Malika Booker, Miriam Nash, Nick McCoha, Warson Shire. Our writers are very, very different from each other. They're Latinx, they're queer, they're white, they're school dropouts, intersex, degree holders, black, gay, old, young, Asian and straight. And they all feel heard and at home with Plibdi. We're always at the forefront of innovation in the publishing world. And we're one of the first publishers to have a regular subscription mailing list back in 2005, as well as a regular podcast. This year, we're publishing some amazing books. We've already published Un Nuevo Sol, British Latinx Writers Anthology. We've got Samatar Elmi, Nilo Sullivan, Sue Morgan. And we've got an amazing, amazing list. What an introduction that was from Catherine Lockton to Fliptie Publishing. And indeed, it's Catherine who joins me today for another episode of the Rippling Pages podcast, Great Writers Making Waves with the Word. Catherine's an editor at Fliptie Publishing, but it's her collection, Paper Doll, that we're here to discuss today. Described as a landmark for the UK Latinx community, Paper Doll at times unflinchingly examines experiences which might be considered traumatic but also while trying to depict what is beautiful about the world. Paper Doll is always original, never settling for a ready-made expression. Catherine joined me from London. So, Catherine Lawson, this is a sensuous collection. Uh, one of the most striking things about Paper Doll is your use of colour. At the centre of this book is a long poem called After Rubrics. Can you give us a bit more to the context of this poem? One of my first memories as a child is trying to solve their Rubik's Cube and never been able to. And um, it, I found it, as I grew older, it was the perfect metaphor for my life because a lot of my tra- traumas were hidden and um, were like, so I didn't really, I was always trying to figure out, put kind of like put pieces of a puzzle together to form my life, to find out, to, um, to work out what exactly had happened. And so I see my life as a big Rubik's Cube that I kind of like struggle to fit together and um, struggle to solve. I still can't solve a Rubik's Cube. So I think that's very apt. So let's go into the poem then itself. Um, And what you do is you you cycle through a series of colours and what these colours mean and also what they don't mean. You take a colour and it's a title... uh, section title and then in tercets you then talk about what that color does and then you're going to say what our parents don't say about that color i i did it kind of like it means to be what it means to be red and what it doesn't mean to be be red and so forth because we often in in society we say you know, white, we know the colour of white because it is not red and it's because it is not black or green. We, there's, there's ultimately a way of, without just kind of showing the interconnectivity of words, I suppose, and how we define ourselves with the what it's not and what it is. So it's kind of playing with that interconnectivity. You talked about the Rubik's Cube and how it relates to an early experience um, and a puzzle from your childhood. 
when you talk about what our parents don't say about blue, how much are you trying to return back then to a particular idea of, I don't know, an experience, trying to work something out? I'm returning back to it in the sense that much of my life was almost like hidden from me. Like my ball was kept from me as a child. And I, um, so it's about what my parents tell me and what they choose not to tell me and what I have to decipher for myself and um, kind of solve and like never been able to solve it until the missing pieces come together. What I really love in this poem is there's a sense of um, ideas and colours clashing. Um, and you said about it's a kind of a binary between what is said and what isn't said. And it seems like they are symbols for a particular experience, but in this collection and in the colours, they bleed. Some of these experiences sort of merge and bleed in, you know, as a kind of physical uh, idea uh, as well. Sometimes I'm a, I was aware growing up there was like a little, um, when I was small, there was a little, like a tiny walking stick at the, at the back of the sofa that I found. And, um, but then it was never told, told to me that I had fallen out the window. So it was like, I kind of knew, but I didn't know. And it made me question my reality. And um, I was always questioning in myself. And it, that made me very um, inquisitive and looking for the answers. And there's a duality of what's hidden, what's not hidden, and what's shown and what's there and what's not really there. And reality really, like question reality and what is real to one person might not be real to another person. The fall from the winter, you, I mean, you mentioned this explicitly on your website uh, and it's, it's something that's had a formative experience, but you don't have any recollection. It's something that you don't know anything about. I don't have, no, I don't have any recollection of actually falling. I have uh, like memories of being in my aunt's kitchen and talking to my mom and saying, oh, uh, can I stay here? Because my aunt wanted me to, wanted to adopt me in that stage. And then I have collections of like lots of pigeons and, and being and a dog that I shouldn't have remembered and um, called Escrofita and um, just running around. And so little clippets, like little spots in time, but um, then it cuts short, I suppose, presumably when I fell out the window. You know, we don't just want to sit and talk about uh, your early, we want to talk about you as a poet, um, but this sensuality, this, you know, and I mean that in a sense of the senses on a pure basis, because you go by touch uh, as well. And it's as if you are sort of touching on these little spots of experience, like perhaps these little squares on a, you know, a Rubik's cube. And there's a line in After Rubik's where I thought these ideas of colour and touch sort of merged. Um, and you say, the tomato sits on their shelf, untouched, but bruised. Now, considering you are writing about embodied and disembodied experiences, things that sort of, you know, happen to you, but don't necessarily feel, you don't necessarily remember. I don't want to say not a part of you, because you don't remember. I wondered how then do these poems arise? How do you start to put these uh, into, you know, you use the structure of the Rubik's Cube, but how do you start to curate these? How do you start to put these on paper? Are you in touch with painful, bruised experiences when writing your poetry? Is that the whole kind of way that it comes around? Or does it sometimes come from an idea in the world that you see? So every poem is very different is, is and is written in a completely different way. There are those poems that begin with a nugget to like a sound or an image. 
and those become that arise from emotion I'll be very angry and then I'll try to work out why I'm angry on the page and um, these poems were very painful to write for the most part but not all of them were painful and I th I'm very much in the set in the in the behind the idea that you have to feel as a as a writer you have to feel the emotion in order for the reader to feel the emotion if you bore yourself and if you if you or if you confuse yourself or if you don't shock yourself or move yourself emotionally then how are you supposed to do that to the reader so if you kind of test the poem out on yourself but without it being all about the trauma and no no art you have to kind of shape it so you splurge it onto the page the first draft which is usually terrible and then you hone it and you kind of craft in it on it like I always see like sculpture sculpting you put you have the hunk of clay and then you 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 kind of carve the face and the nose and you kind of want to chisel away at the nose so it's doesn't overtake the face but similarly that it's not so too skinny that it's not recognizable as a nose so everything's about balance and putting things into proportion and editing is a big task in itself it's perhaps more important than the actual first draft because you know it's very easy to like rom it onto the page almost but you have to <laughs> you have to kind of like make something out of it because you are a teacher as well aren't you South Bank Poetry, yeah. So I teach poetry and I've taught at Chase. I've taught everyone from um, PhD students at Chase, um, doctoral research funding body, and um, elderly residents with um, dementia and six-year-olds at birthday parties. So um, so I teach everyone and I teach at City Lit at the moment. And um, I love teaching, so yeah. So when you're... Um this idea of a sculpture and you know creating the the, the, the metaphor uses of sculpting a nose so it looks like a nose but all these different people that you're teaching and you know teaching the art of poetry which they're going to all be taking different things from it um, and using it in very different ways how close how important is it that you are close to a semblance of reality you know does every does every nose need to look like knows if that makes sense yeah that makes sense um no as long as it it depends what you're what you want to achieve with your poem so as long as it like I'm, I'm very much in the belief that once you've written it and it's on the page and it's been published it it's up to the reader what they take away and what they understand from it and it's it's separate from you so a nose to me might be like something else to someone else so it it really doesn't as long as you get across the core emotion, I think. So as long as you, as long as, long as I, if I want to, someone to cry, they're not laughing or they're not like, then feeling anything else. I think it matters how you move the reader in response to the emotion rather than like the minute, minute details. Are you, uh, are you perhaps sculpting the reader in some kind of way? Is that, you know, is your poetry an extension of trying to sculpt the reader's emotions? Or is it not, is it not as intrusive as that? I kind of want to leave it up to the reader. I know, like, I kind of use myself as a, as a guinea pig. So if it moves me, or if it makes me, like, feel a particular way, then I kind of use that as an indication that it might 
possibly tr trigger the same emotions in someone else if I, I, I do it to the right if I do it to the right in the right way let's talk more about paper dolls the name of the collection and some of the ideas you're talking about here in particular sculpting ideas um because you return to the image a lot and there are several poems that have a you know a different kind of iteration of the name paper doll paper dolls um and for me a bit like the rubik's cube potentially a doll can relate to both play and a sense of control why did you choose a paper doll to be a point of reference in this collection a collection which often features people either being controlled or trying to control uh, events in some way the doll because essentially um i felt like the, the the protagonist of the poem which is essentially me is um felt like you play with dolls you don't really take them seriously and um they're very much paper doll because they're kind of like disposable they're not you can scrunch them up and then you can throw them away they're very disposable and i, I touch on themes of adultery and abuse and power and control and they all kind of seem to tie together with that element of being indisposable disposable i mean yeah dolls and disposable experience so i mean when you say disposable how much do you kind of how much of that experience is owned when you come to write the poem then is there, is it a way is the poem a way of understanding that experience or is it a way of kind of processing it and then it's yeah, I, I see what you, you're saying. So poetry above anything else is an art. It can be therapeutic in the sense that you, you, you pro allows you to process emotion, allows you to really touch what you're feeling and process it. But unless you're able to really engage with the emotion and if you just dip in and out of it and you don't process it, I'm all about, you have to, because I teach poetry and trauma, in South Bank Poetry. And I'm all about, you have to feel the emotion in order to, so you get used to feeling the emotion because a lot of people like tend to, are scared by feelings. So, so they can't process it. So they get angry and they can't, so they act out or they leash out or they get scared and then they start using other forms like alcohol. And so it's all about, being able to being comfortable with the emotion so you know to how to not control it but how to allow it to flow through and then pass like a wave had um therapy for a number of years and it, my therapist always says it's about um letting the allowing yourself to feel the emotion and not fighting it because it's kind of like a canister where if you with gas in it or whatever and if you like a champagne bottle, if you push it down and push it down, it will eventually expo explode. The kind of, you know, artist therapy and, and therapeutic experience, I mean, this idea of, you know, put it down on paper, put it, the way to understand things, the way to understand the world is you get it down uh, on paper. Because paper is really important. It's not just dolls. It's really important that it's, it's paper dolls. And the way you talked about they, you know, some of the experiences and, thing, and some of the poems um, and paper seems to be a way that you can unravel or scrunch up these experiences, whether that's for better or for worse. And does, does the process then of, um, is it a process then of unraveling experience? I would say it's a process of 
um, first of all, understand connecting to your feelings mm. and finding out what you're feeling, how why you're feeling it, accepting how you're feeling and um, processing it. People, victims and stuff like to be feel have a voice to be heard, hence the fact that people victims have um, big victim impact statements because it empowers them. So poetry is a form of therapy kind of provide gives them a voice but it does, it's not the only answer it's it has to be done in in relation with in conjunction with therapy as well but it's it's almost like the beginning so it's the beginning to accept it and the beginning to process the emotions and I find um the people that have attended my poetry and trauma class found it very helpful in the sense that they began to in a supportive atmosphere environment they began to like feel emotions and just let them out be supported and held emotionally so that they can get used to feeling how to feel things that's um i just love this idea of a support support supportive space um you know and again therapy and art it gets kind of conflated sometimes and like you said it's the beginning it's not the whole story it can be the beginning it can be part of the journey it can be the whole journey and i love this idea of this kind of supportive circle but let's talk a bit more about the kind of mechanics of your poems and some of your poems and what i find that you really utilize is quite simple uh, monosyllabic use of verbs um, and this these can be used to really powerful effect uh, particularly when you are talking about instances of people being controlled or in control. I don't know if you want to sort of talk about the kind of, you know, the sounds of the words that you create. Is it the sounds of the words? Is it the meaning of the words? It's a bit of both. It's um, the fact that they're simple, they're, they're like commands. They, um, when you're, and also they have, they imply being shouted at or you kind of like, when someone says, do you push that or pull that? Push, pull, it kind of like, it's as well as the sound of the of the letters and the way it works it's more immediate and more grabbing it it doesn't say oh please can you push that or please can you pull that it's more like a command and a term of a way of control yeah because it does create an can be unsettling for the reader and that connection you talked about at the start you talked about um you know extending this experience to the reader it it, do, it can be quite a, a you know uncomfortable uh, experience for the reader, in a, you know, in a good sense because we are sort of empathising that we're trying to you know we're getting a real understanding of the feelings of some of the experiences that you um, are writing about. Paper doll, you keep me folded in the inside pocket of your coat, like a dirty secret glanced at only when your wife is too busy. I'm going yellow at the edges. The last time you checked on me, there was a slight tear by my right thigh. I hold hands with another girl whose body is bent against mine. She is just one in a long queue. Pressed up against me, the dolls feel the rip in me. The fright of it makes them tear themselves like women who have given birth. Mi lengua. Mientras comía mi cereal esta mañana, while eating my cereal this morning, se cayó mi lengua en mi plato. Se quedó ahí. My tongue fell off into my plate. It stayed there. 
nadando en la leche mientras mi mamá me hablaba, swimming in milk while my mom spoke. No he podido decirle que no puedo hablar. I couldn't tell her that I could no longer speak. En ese momento llegué a entender que la vida, in that moment I understood that life pasa mientras que nosotras las mujeres planchamos, passes us by while us women iron the shirts of our men, las camisas de nuestros hombres. There are a lot of women in this collection. There's quite a bit of infidelity, or there seems to be other wives or another wife in some instances. Um, and there are sometimes aunts and sometimes people just from kind of community. And sometimes these are in a sense of sorority, you know, they're, uh, but sometimes they're not. And sometimes there's quite a judging eye cast by some of these women. Where do these, are these, where do these characters come from? Where, you know, how do these work their way into, into your poem? I think I wanted to, what I, I did, I wanted to create a spectrum, a whole variety of women and not just um, do the archetypal woman as being good or bad or, so I wanted to cover a range of, of different females and different female perspectives and character and experiences. So they come from life and my experiences and they're very much based on the everyday in the real world. The use of paper dolls, we've talked about you as a teacher. Uh, we talked to you, uh, we talked about you as a citizen of the world, um, as a poet. Um, now you are of dual heritage, is that correct? Yeah, we, so yes. like Anglo-Bolivian, so yeah. Anglo-Bolivian, um, you spent a lot of time in Bolivia in your youth. Yes. Um, I mean, we, we even see um, some of the use, it's Spanish, isn't it? Spanish language. Yeah, so you yeah. use Spanish quite a lot in these poems, don't you? What was the kind of effect you were trying to create here? So I was kind of trying to, so the, when in the collection Paper Doll, I think the poems in the collection, I'm pretty sure they have, um, when you read the Spanish, the English version is directly below it. But I am working on collect poetry at the moment which tends to use more Spanish and um, doesn't always translate it. So I think it's very much opens the question as to the T.S. Eliot opened, which is to, how, to what extent does poetry have to be accessible and do, do you, does everyone have to be able to understand it on the first reading? In the world, in like, you know, society has got moved on from the T.S. Eliot days and Google can answer pretty much any question. So it's, it's not so much as pushing the reader away, but creating a new voice and a new language for to represent my dual heritage and represent the part, you know, I'm not English, I'm not Bolivian. I'm, I'm you know, a bit of both. I, I grew up in a mixed heritage household. My mum was very, my mum dressed me in um, little, Bolivian dresses and I recited Spanish Bolivian poetry in Bolivian festivals and parties while at the same time at the school I had to learn everything in English and read solely English poets so it's, it's finding a way of amalgamating the two worlds and finding a voice for that in-between space. Um, I spoke to a lot of writers 
for this podcast series. And some of them um, have written books in their, not in their mother tongue, so they've written it in English when they might have been um, born in a different country. Um, and obviously we've talked about the issues of a mother tongue and the ideas of a mother tongue. And some have, some have written back in their, in their native tongue and then seen it translated again. And the, a, a kind of theme is that there are restrictions. Uh, it feels sometimes, you know, for me, as who, some, who doesn't speak another language, language opens up the world. If I was to speak another language, I would kind of see it as a way of, you know, accessing, as you said, accessibility. What the kind of dynamics are at play when, you know, is it restricted? Do you think in terms of feel restrained or constraint when you're writing in one particular language and switch to another language or... Uh, like I said, is it about opening the kind of spaces between language? It's about, um, I almost become, it's interesting you said that because I, I become a very different person when I'm speaking in Spanish and I become much more animated and much more, you know, they say, oh, you like, I think me, my um, editor said, you, you look completely, you sound, look like a completely different person when you speak in Spanish. And, um, and I do, I become a whole different personality and um, it's interesting because it's finding that bridge between them. I'm much more serious in English, I think, although I have my playful side. The sound yeah. of the language is very different. So um, Spanish is a Latin language. It's much more rhyme. It's very easy to rhyme in Spanish because it's a Latin language. And whereas, you know, English isn't a Latin language and it's very much the stiff upper lip and the British stiff upper lip and this my sense of humor in English tends to be more dark so it'll be like very dark whereas my sense of humor in Spanish tends to be like very cheesy and well you do use rhyme um I mean this is always a thing isn't it it's when you know I, I've got I always remember sort of when I first started reading Baudelaire and I had the French translation of the English translation on the other page and you know you don't have to read French to kind of hear the sounds and, the, and how this doesn't and sometimes does and if it does translate into English it's not the same um, and you talk about the kind of easiness of rhyming in Spanish because you do rhyme um, in English. It's about playing with language and playing with the sound and trying to reflect the meaning you want to portray and um, seeing what how the sounds sit next to each other and how they contribute to the meaning and how they contribute to the way readers hear them in their, their mind and the way they're going to read them out loud. And so it's, sound is very important. So I always say, so my ideal poem is one that plays with sound, one that plays with imagery, one that's very concise and one that does something to the to the reader. So it like it makes them laugh or makes them cry or makes them want to go out and like change the world or something. So it has to, it's, it's not prose. It has the element of the white space. It can play around, yeah, it can yeah. surprise the reader with the line endings and, and give them unexpected beginnings and the verse breaks and... Yeah, because you, it, you are appealing to the emotions, you know, you are concerned with pathos, but it's not just about the appeal to emotions. Of course, isn't it? It's, um, and I, I find it really interesting that you um, talk about the kind of white space and the construction of the poem. You know itself i mean just thinking about um some of the themes we've talked about because at the time you know reading the collection at times 
it made me think about how we treat ourselves and pa different parts of ourselves uh, and other people as well, of course. But can poetry teach us how to treat people, ourselves better? In the sense, yes and no, in the sense it can teach us, it can show us what it means, what it, how it, another, it can show us another person's experience. So in that sense, we get in, gain an insight into their world and it creates empathy with them, but then so can the short story. So what can poetry do that the short story can't do? It's, um, it, it lets us feel what they feel and it also shows us the power of, of the imagination. It can show us what it's like to walk and live in, in other people's shoes, what it means to be them, how they, I always say read everything to my, I always say to my students to read voices that are like completely different to their own, people of different race, religion, um, belief systems, everything, so that they, um, so they, it enhances their view of the world and which in turn adds another di di another dimension to their writing. So it shows us and also shows us the power of imagination, what is possible. So when we're little, we kind of think and constantly we imagine what we want our lives to be like. So we were like, I want to live in a house with a dog and a fence and 2.2 children and or whatever <laughs> and without that power of imagination imaginating without the power of imagining we wouldn't be able to dream our futures and what is possible and also on a practical level the person who invented the pillow or the hoover had to imagine it first so had to, had to dream it up and so it's, it works on a practical level as well uh, well, you know, even some cases, personal circumstances are interesting and worth talking about, I think, as well. Um, yeah, definitely, definitely. As you, as you have done, and, and it provides some really interesting context. And just to hear some stories behind the stories. But Fliptide Publishing, 20 years, they're publishing great writers, they're publishing a lot more great writers. Catherine Lockton uh, is one of them. And Catherine Lockton, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you so much. I this has been an amazing experience, so thank you. Why don't you join me next time for part two of this flip tie special when I'm going to be joined by Samatai Elmi as he talks to me about his collection, Portrait of Colossus.